0: that is true the Lord Jesus Christ is the true and only wise king and to him alone be all the glory and the honor and the praise Well, welcome you this morning my name is Kenneth Bruce and I'm the senior pastor here at Westwood and I'm just so thankful that we can come together and to celebrate and lift high the Lord Jesus Christ we're also here this weekend it's a time to celebrate our nation's independence I praise God for his kindness to allow us as a country to come together in moments like these in which we get to celebrate the one from whom all the greatest freedom comes from. Well, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to be at Evangel Classical Christian School in which one of our students, Grace Earwood, presented a paper, a senior thesis that I found so compelling that I thought, I want her to share this with our people. And so this morning, you're going to hear just a brief part of Grace Earwood's senior thesis and what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the context of the United States of America. So would you welcome with me Grace Earwood.
1: Thank you, Kenneth. William Wilberforce was well known during his time in English politics. He began his 50 year investment into the social realm of England when he was 21. He became a believer at age 25 and considered leaving politics. However, through wise counsel, Wilberforce was told, "'It is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up "'for the good of his church and for the good of the nation.'" Wilberforce would go on to be one of the greatest political influences of his day. He was a Christian living in a culture that did not pursue God, yet he did. He understood his English citizenship because he was living in light of his heavenly citizenship. That's
0: right.
1: In fact, Russell Moore, president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, writes in his book, Onward, we ought to remember what a shifting culture might force us to remember what we should have never forgotten in the first place. That national identity is important, but transitory. We must not shrink our calling as citizens and we must not see our citizenship of the moment as the final word. We are Americans best when we are not Americans first. Moore said that to be great citizens of any country, Christians would have to live as citizens of heaven first and foremost. Wilberforce exemplified Moore's philosophy as he sought to abolish the social ills and egregious sins of his day. However, many people today, unlike Wilberforce, has forgotten that heavenly citizenship comes first. How can Christians live as excellent national citizens while seeking God's kingdom first? Christians fulfill their responsibilities to God and country best. When they live as double citizens of heaven and earth respect authority and understand government and seek first the coming kingdom of Christ. First, a believer's citizenship is found not only in a country, but also in heaven. Philippians three twenty says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the believer, first citizenship is held in heaven and secured for eternity. Then, the believer's second citizenship is held in the country in which he or she lives. Peter Lighthart, president of Theophilus Institute, describes Christians as double citizens. He explains, we are citizens of heaven, first of all, citizens of the church, the earthly outpost of our city. Each citizenship is sure, yet one carries more significance and informs the other. As citizens of heaven, believers are brought into community and encouraged to live like Christ. Specifically, followers of Christ make excellent community members and good citizens as they strive to follow Christ's perfect example. In Matthew, Jesus commands his followers to love their neighbor as themselves. James calls believers to care for orphans and widows in their distress. It is in fulfilling these commands to love others that the weak are supported and Christ is glorified. This command is successfully made incarnate inside the local church However, parachurch organizations are established in partnership with the local church to help meet the needs in the community. These organizations include pregnancy resource centers, food banks, adoption agencies, among many others. Christians can see that God intended dual citizenship and community participation. If believers follow Christ's example of servanthood and sacrifice for others, there would be no question that community needs are being met. We can live as citizens of our country, knowing that we have been called to a higher citizenship in heaven. The second essential fact in understanding our heavenly citizenship is that God has ordained government as a way to keep order on the earth. He is still sovereign over government in each sphere of life. Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary professor Bruce Ashford writes that even unfallen humans would have to set laws and regulations on everyday life. However, he concludes that because of the fall, government would have to expand to include the sword of Romans 13, yet not apart from God. Ashford states, and at every moment when the power of death is at work, seeking to claim every square inch of the universe, God's power is also at work, counterclaiming all those inches. Therefore, God is always at work in every circumstance, and he uses governments as well as individuals to enact his will. A believer's submission to the government reflects his or her ultimate submission to God. Romans 13one and 4 say, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by him. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Christians submit not because their leader can accomplish anything on their own, but because God is using the leader to serve his greater purposes. Jonathan Lehman, elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, agrees. He explains, Caesar must be rendered honor, not because he can accomplish salvation, but because he uses the sword of judgment to provide a space for the gospel to give forth. Thus, Christians can respect their government, knowing that whether or not they agree, God has ordained them to serve his purposes." God also provides some specific instructions for how believers can live in the cities in which he has placed them. These instructions were originally given to the Israelites in exile. However, modern day Christians can model this because they too are living as exiles in this land. Jeremiah 29, four through seven says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God told his people to live as normal citizens, taking spouses and starting families and praying for governing authorities. Just as God's people lived in exile, so too let every Christian thrive in his or her city and pray for governing authorities. Peter echoed this in 1 Peter 2, 16 through 17, when he writes, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Christians are to live as servants for Christ in the land in which they are placed including honoring authorities. While praying for our nation to be a godly one, this does not mean forcing or establishing state Christianity. Wayne Grudem, professor at Phoenix Seminary says, Jesus came the first time to offer the gospel to all who would receive it, not to execute punishment on those who rejected it. He will one day come again to judge at the end of the church age, but during this age, it is not the prerogative of the church to use physical force to carry out judgment. In fact, he concludes by saying, faith in Christ to be truly held and practiced cannot be compelled by force. Christianity is a willing response to Christ's sacrifice and cannot be forced on any citizen by any government. God's word is powerful enough to save, no Christian nation needed. Mm -hmm. Lastly, not only are we citizens of heaven and we can trust God with our government, but also once national citizens put their faith in Christ, they seek their heavenly citizenship in Christ's coming kingdom. We are living in an earthly city and awaiting the day when our savior will return. Citizenship and belonging to the kingdom have yet to be fully realized. Christ's kingdom will merge the state in his church perfectly with Christ at the center. Pastor of Family Church, Jimmy Scroggins says, we should remind American believers that Jesus is not an American and that his eternal government will be created in a new Jerusalem not a new Washington D.C. God is creating and preparing a new Jerusalem, not a new American government. The only true change of government leaders and administration will be when Christ returns. His kingdom is forever and will surpass every governmental system in every respect. Hebrews 11:8 and 16 say, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham and his family had faith in the promises God had made. They sought after what God had promised, which was a heavenly country. Followers of Christ are in the same position. We are longing for the city that God has prepared for us as an inheritance. Just as God had prepared a temporary city for Abraham and his descendants, so too God is also preparing a permanent and heavenly city for those who follow him. Christians can long for the coming kingdom of Christ because they understand that they are citizens of it. They also recognize that God is in control of government and that Christ will establish the perfect government when he returns. However, there are some that will question appropriate patriotism. Some will say that if patriotism takes second place, we must not be giving honor to whom it is due. For the believer, giving honor to the nation or giving praise to God is a both and, not an either or situation. However, God is to receive our ultimate submission and glory. David Gushi, professor at Mercer University, says it like this, asking someone to avoid patriotism, a way to say thank you to the nation in which citizenship is held because it compromises their Christian faith is like asking him or her to avoid demonstrating affection for his or her parents because that too can compromise our christian faith it is reasonable to be patriotic but sometimes christians will seem unpatriotic when they do not put america first indeed being patriotic is not a sin but believers must be careful in their actions and intentions and patriotism william wilberforce was told that he was raised up in politics for god's purpose And that is just what took place. Soon after his conversion, God called him to fight to end the slave trade. And after many long years and arguments in parliament, the slave trade was abolished. Wilberforce was faithful to the calling that God had placed on his life. He considered others greater than himself. He sought to bless the oppressed. He lived as a heavenly citizen first and became an outstanding English citizen second. We may not have great political influence, And we may not be able to abolish the political atrocities of today, but we can be faithful to the calling that God has given each and every one of us and live as heavenly citizens first while living in America second. In fact, Christians fulfill their responsibilities to God and country best. When they live as double citizens of heaven and earth, respect authority and understand government and seek first the coming kingdom of Christ. We are only excellent citizens of America when we are citizens of heaven first let me leave you with the wise words of Daryl Crouch who says, what a tragedy it would be to win the White House and to lose the souls of those God has given to our care. So let us examine the places of our deepest passions. Let us consider what thrills us and what grieves us. And let us embrace the work of the evangelist so that we may win the world as the day draws near. Thank you. Amen. Amen.
0: and I have to follow that. (laughs) I should have put you at the end of the service. (laughs) Praise God. Amen. Thank you, Grace. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we indeed are grateful. We're grateful for our nation. We're grateful for the leaders whom you have placed in authority above us. We're grateful for the freedoms that we have, and Lord, we indeed do not take them for granted. And yet, Lord, indeed, just as Grace just said, Lord, we we know that we're citizens of an even greater kingdom. There's a nation that's coming whose designer and builder is you. And Lord, we long for that day in which our faith will be sight. We will gather under the leadership and the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until that day, I pray you would find us faithful. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that not only prepares us for the world that is to come, but it empowers us for the world of today. So indeed, may we be people who make much of you throughout all of our lives. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of God's many good gifts to us is other people. In the almost 18 years that I've been following Jesus, the Lord has put godly men into my life who have taught me and corrected me. They have rebuked me and they have encouraged me. Having men in your life and women having other godly women in your life are means of grace that enable you to follow Jesus more faithfully. I was reminded of that this week as I was reading the book by Michael Card, entitled The Walk. And Michael Card, he's a Christian songwriter, and he's a recording artist and author. And in this book, he retraces a mentoring relationship that he had with one of his college professors at Western Kentucky University by the name of Bill Lane. Michael recounts stories and conversations of how Bill would teach him how to become more faithful to Jesus. Bill would eventually become diagnosed with cancer. And as he's entering into the home stretch of his life, he called Michael, and he told him the news and then said these words, I want to show you how a Christian man dies. I want to show you how a Christian man dies. Every time I read that sentence in this book, i stop in my tracks. It sentence just it packs with conviction and with courage. And it makes me want to finish faithfully. It puts a desire even more so in my heart to not only live for the glory of Jesus and be faithful to him in this life, but to be sprinting across the finish line, falling into his arms on the other side. What about you? Do you want to finish well? Do you mean one who is sprinting across the finishing line when you go and see Jesus? If you want to finish well, you cannot do it alone. You need people in your life who will encourage and champion you as you follow hard after Christ. You need people who will put their arm around you. And they will speak directly into your heart. What we're going to see this morning, as we look inside the Scriptures, we're going to see Simon Peter, who's like a loving pastor, a loving mentor. And it's like he is reaching through this letter, and he is putting his arm around 1st century and 21st century believers And He is speaking directly into our hearts, saying, this is how you respond to suffering. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We as a faith family are going through a sermon series entitled Imperishable Righteousness, in which we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter together and We have seen how Simon Peter is challenging these believers who are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, and he is encouraging them to remain faithful. He is challenging them to, to stand firm in the true grace of God. Even though suffering and persecution is increasing, he is admonishing them, do not back down. Remain faithful to Jesus. Finish well. And what's interesting is he's writing this. These are believers where the trials are getting more intense. Now, these Christians, they're receiving this letter. They don't have home-field advantage when it comes to religious liberty. They They don't have the freedom of the First Amendment in which they are free to gather and assemble and to worship. You see, for the early church, following Jesus would cost you. At the time Peter is writing this, Rome was led by a crazy, unstable emperor named Nero, who at one point set the entire city of Rome on fire over the course of 10 days. And then once the entire city and the nation was upset with him, he blamed Christians. This is a man who would dip believers in wax, and they would become human candles at his garden parties. He would sick them to wild animals for the sake of following Christ. And so Peter is writing to these believers to encourage them to persevere, to stand firm, to remain faithful until the very end. Now, suffering for Christ is a common experience for those who belong to Jesus. So Paul told us this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, in fact, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Simon Peter is speaking to believers who are experiencing suffering, and he writes to them, and he writes to us to prepare us with rock-solid biblical truth for us to stand on when suffering comes our way. I want you to see in the text this morning five things that we are to do when suffering comes. I want you to see first, number one, when suffering comes, you must be expectant. Be expectant. Look at verse 12. Peter writes, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. He uses that phrase, dear friends. Some of your translations may have the word beloved. It's the word uh, agape, I just, I, a word of love, of self-sacrificial love. And he's saying, I love you so much, his tone here is very pastoral. It's very loving and full of compassion. Like he's putting his arm around these first century believers saying, I love you so much. You are my dear friends. And the motivation that he has of love for them is the same motivation of what the, the kind of love that God shows us in the gospel. That indeed the love that we have from God, God loves you. And he proves it through the death of his son at the cross. Indeed, in Christ, you are his dear friends. You are his beloved. Well, what does he say once he calls them dear friends? Verse 12 Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. He's saying, listen, when suffering comes, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when people hate you when you're a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Suffering is not a sneaky left hook that you did not see coming in a fight. In fact, John says in 1 John 3.13, don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He goes on to say, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It shouldn't surprise you when people rise up against you for your faith in Jesus. Indeed, you should expect it when the fiery ordeal comes against you. But what is its purpose? Peter tells us, verse 12, he says, to test you. You see, the Lord... Who only gives good gifts to his children, ordains trials as means to test the validity of your faith. And the testing of your faith reveals how authentic and legit your faith is. As someone who's been following Jesus for almost 18 years now, every trial that God has brought into my life, it has always worked for my good. Every single time. And though it is not pleasant and it is painful, the different trials and struggles that I have gone through, every single time God uses it to refine my character. And it leads me to cling tighter to Jesus, to long for the kingdom that is to come. And indeed, God uses all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And so Simon Peter is saying, when trials come, when suffering comes, be expectant. But then secondly, he says, be joyful. When suffering comes, be joyful. Look at verse 13. He says, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. You see, the Christian response to persecution is not Eeyore. It's not, woe is me. Christian response to suffering is not rage. It's not returning cursing for cursing. Indeed, the Christian response to suffering is rejoicing. It is being full of joy. Now, what I love about Peter is that he didn't just preach it, he lived it. So let me show you. Grab your Bibles, keep your finger in 1 Peter 4, but turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. What's happening in Acts chapter 5 is the early church is gaining momentum. The gospel is being preached. People are being won to Jesus, and the early church is being established. As it's being established, God is using Peter and the apostles to perform miracles. These miracles are validating the gospel that they're preaching. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is so using Peter that they were lining up sick people along the road so that Peter's shadow might go over people and they would be healed. And as this momentum is building in Jerusalem for this early church, the high priest, verse 17, and those who belonged to him, they were filled with jealousy. So verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord, verse 19, opened the doors of the jail during the night and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Well, that morning, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, it's time to go and get Peter and the apostles out of prison. And they show up, everything's locked, the guards are in place, but they're not inside. And someone says, Look, they're over there and they're preaching, verse 25. And then they say, verse 28, "'Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? "'Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching "'and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood.'" Well, Peter and the apostles replied, "'We must obey God rather than people. "'The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, "'whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree.'" God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, this just made them angry, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So the Pharisees, the the, the, um, the Sanhedrin, they they huddle up and they say, we got to take these guys down. But there's this one guy who's a Pharisee. His name is Gamaliel. And he says, hold on, guys. We have some examples throughout history of revolutionaries who have risen up and they are no more. He says, verse 38, for if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. So they were persuaded by Gamaliel, verse forty. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, flogging is a whipping. The shirt is removed. The end of the flog is of the whip is uh, bones and animal teeth and rock. And when it is struck against the back, they rip out the skin, sometimes even exposing internal organs. It's the exact same suffering that Jesus went through before his death on the cross. Well, here, Peter and the apostles, they're experiencing the exact same thing. Verse 40, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, what's that say? Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. When suffering comes, the believer's response is always rejoicing. Rejoicing is the Christian response to suffering. When you go through difficulty in life, when you experience suffering in pain, rejoicing is our response. I pray and I preach to this end to so mobilize our church so that when suffering comes into your life, your response is joy. Because you find that God is far more satisfying than anything that this world provides for us. Indeed, I pray and I preach so that God might make us a church that finds joy in the midst of suffering. So does Paul, as he's imprisoned in Rome, he says in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, Rejoice. You see, joy is finding your happiness in God, not in the things of this world, not in the circumstances that you face, but joy is found in God himself. But joy not only brings God glory, but it's also a tool for evangelism. When I was living in Kentucky, I had a job, and one of my coworkers, her name was Tracy, and she was a believer. And so one day I said, Tracy, how did you come to faith in Jesus? And she says, well, I had a really good friend who was a Christian. And she was going through a terrible trial in her life. And she was being treated horribly by people. And yet she had joy. And I thought, I want that. And Tracy was won to the Lord by seeing how a believer suffers with joy. Well, Simon Peter is saying, when you suffer... When you go through trials in this life, choose joy. Choose joy. Christian and I have a painting over our kitchen sink with those two words on it. Choose joy. So that whenever you go through difficulty and trial and struggle, regardless of what you experience, you choose joy. Why? Verse 13 so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Okay, so on that day that Jesus returns and rescues us, that is the day of great joy. Okay, that phrase great joy, it literally means leaping and jumping in celebration. Okay, I'm seeing it on TV right now watching the World Cup. As I see someone score a goal and fans are hugging and they're, they're high-fiving and they're crying and laughing, they're literally jumping up and down, celebrating. This fall at Jordan Hare and at Bryant-Denny, there is going to be much great rejoicing. People jumping and leaping and celebrating. How much greater will that day be when Jesus comes? suffering will be done away with, death is no longer, Jesus will be king, we will be with him forever, and there will be great rejoicing amongst the people of God. That is the day we look forward to. The day that Jude says in Jude 24, now to him who's able to keep you blameless, almost had it, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. There is a day coming in which we will be leaping and celebrating because the Lord Jesus Christ will return for us. But until then, verse 14. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. As believers, we must be willing to endure the insults, the mocking, the cursing, the verbal assaults of the world for the sake of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus endured it for you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he says, When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, Jesus is our model for suffering because he was our forerunner in suffering. When he was taken into custody before his trial, he was taking a beating from the Roman soldiers and they were making fun of him, the scripture says. While he's hanging upon the cross, people are walking by, wagging their heads, mocking him. If you really are the son of God, get down off that cross. If you truly are God's son, save yourself. He didn't respond with cursing. He didn't respond with, woe is me. But Hebrews says, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You see, when you are willing to endure that, notice what you gain. Verse 14, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Who doesn't want that? The spirit of God, the spirit of glory, God himself rests upon you. You see, this is something Jesus told us would happen. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. But here's the thing. You have to be willing to be hated by this world. If you seek the praise of man, you just got your reward. But if you seek the praise of God, the Lord says, I'm going to bless you. You have a reward coming in heaven and the spirit of glory is going to rest upon you. So when suffering comes, be joyful. I also want you to see number three, when suffering comes, be blameless. Be blameless. Verse 15, let none of you suffer As a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler? Peter's calling upon believers to holy living. If you belong to Jesus, sin is no longer a mark of who you are or what you do. You would think that this goes without saying... But Peter is calling upon believers to live godly, holy, blameless lives. Indeed, we are to hold fast to a life of righteousness. He says in chapter three, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Christians must not be those who suffer because of our own tempers, because of our own impatience, because we're meddling in other people's affairs. He says, no, 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 no. We don't suffer for those things. But number four, when suffering comes, be unashamed of Christ. Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. When suffering comes, we must not be ashamed of being a Christian. But rather, we glorify God when we are called by that name. That name Christian originally began in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where it says that they were first called Christians at Antioch. The name Christian it means Christ follower or little Christ. It was initially used as a word of insult against Christians. You, you Christian, you little Christ. And believers were like, hey, we kind of like that. We're going to keep that. And it became no longer an insult, but a source of identity. This is who I am. I am now a little Christ. I am now a follower of Jesus. And Peter's like, do not be ashamed of bearing that name. But for these first century believers in Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia, the reality is you may lose your job for being a Christian. You may lose your house. You may lose your very life. So when someone comes knocking on the door... And they say, are you a Christian? What do you say? And Peter is saying, I want to prepare you for that moment. That moment when they say, do you really believe this stuff? So for us, when you go to that college class and the professor is like, you really believe all those fairy tales? When you're at work and someone mocks you, you claim to be a Christian? You believe all that stuff? you're saying when that day comes do not be ashamed don't back down don't be embarrassed stand firm in the true grace of God you don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed of being called a Christian this is who you are this is your opportunity to stand firm and say I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ indeed I can agree with the apostle Paul in Romans 1:16 for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. When you are faced with a difficult situation and they say, do you really believe this stuff? You can stand firm and say, yes. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will not flinch and I will not back down. You can throw your fist. You can call me names. You can take my job, but I belong to Jesus. I have been bought with his blood and for me to live as Christ. Die is game. We're just passing through. I've got a heavenly kingdom that's coming, and it's going to far outweigh anything here in this world. So be unashamed. Fifth and finally, when suffering comes, be unashamed of Christ. Be faithful. Number five, be faithful. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment To begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You see, in the text, Peter is giving two rhetorical questions. And a part of his point here is that. God's people in the past, they have gone through his judgment, meaning they have gone through suffering. And those who are going to remain faithful to Jesus in this life, you are going to suffer. Now, the judgment, verse 17, of God's household, which is us, the church, this is the suffering that we are going to endure in this life. Okay, this is not judgment for our sin, okay? That was settled at the cross, Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the judgment that he's talking about is not a judgment for our sin, it is the suffering that we are going to endure in this life. And then he says, and we're going to be saved with difficulty." Now, doesn't it mean that we are just barely saved, or that we just get barely get by by the skin of our teeth. No, it means if a Christian is saved, if we belong to Jesus, then we are going to suffer. Well, if we're going to suffer and we've got Christ, what's the outcome going to be of those who don't know Jesus? If we're going to go through the sufferings with Jesus and He's with us, and we're going to be faithful to Him and He's faithful to us, what about those who don't know the Lord? What kind of judgment are they going to incur here? You see, the Christian's judgment produces perseverance for Christ. The unbeliever's judgment is punishment for rejecting Christ. And for those who reject the gospel, those who do not repent and believe upon Jesus, God's wrath is coming. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, please Turn from your sin. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to Jesus. He loves you and he proved it through his death on the cross. He was buried but didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day and he gives eternal life and forgiveness to anyone who would believe. Just trust in him. He'll receive you. He knows your past. He knows your sin. He knows your shame. And he still loves you. And he welcomes you to himself if you would turn and trust in him. But for us who belong to Jesus, this text is a call to faithfulness. One of my former students is now a missionary with the International Mission Board in South Africa. As a Southern Baptist Church, a portion of when you and I give, we send it to the IMB, and we are helping support the greatest mission-sending agency in the history of the church. We currently have more than 5,000 missionaries serving in the most dangerous parts of the world preaching the gospel, and one of them is one of my former students and his wife. And this weekend, he tweeted these words, I can't wait for tomorrow. Two young ladies are coming to be baptized, and a new church is forming through their faithful following and testimony. Pray for these young ladies in this soon to be new church that they all remain faithful in the face of persecution in this new life. You see, following Jesus is costly, it may even cost you your life. And so, the call for us who belong to the Lord is be faithful even in the midst of suffering. So Kenneth, can you, can you simplify this a little bit? What are you asking us to do? Well, I think Peter does it far better than I could. Look at verse 19. So then let us, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. The impact point is entrust your life completely to the Lord and do good. This is, your, this is your mission statement here that Peter's laying out for you when you suffer. When suffering comes, you can rest assured, verse 19, that your trial is under the sovereign control of a faithful creator. He is the one who ordains all things according to the counsel of his will. And our suffering is for our good and for his glory. And beloved, he will not allow you to suffer one second longer than he sees fit. And God will also not for one second ever leave you alone when you go through suffering he is there with you to the very end so let me ask you who is it that you're putting your arm around who is it that you're encouraging rebuking teaching admonishing to be more faithful to Jesus Are you ready for when that day comes where you can say, I want to show you how a Christian man dies? Are you ready to say that? Well, it all begins in the same place. Humbling yourself before a wooden, blood-stained cross and at an empty That is where you can stare death in the face and say, I have victory through the Lord Jesus Christ.